I don't care how the property is 50 units or 400 units or 800 units, one asset manager and maybe a backup when that person is not available, being the point of contact with the property manager, having a regular cadence absolutely established on a weekly basis or worst case bi-weekly in the beginning, maybe sometimes twice a week, are keys to success there. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Tabor Lote, and today our guest is Andrew Schutzke. Today we're digging through his experience as a C-suite executive, starting as an investor in short-term rentals and gradually growing and transitioning his strategy to include large multifamily properties. We dig through lessons that he learned along the way, starting in short-term rentals, buying one as kind of an asset that would pay for its own vacations, if you will, as a place to take his family on vacation. It worked out well, but he found that, hey, I need to grow this if I really want to build huge passive income. He got into multifamily investing. And today we're digging into that experience, how he now kind of does both, how he balances his real estate investing with family commitments and with his pretty major professional commitments as well. A ton of great lessons in this one. I know there are a lot of you out there who are either currently in the midst of making the decision, whether you want to go short-term rentals or multifamily, maybe you're making the transition to add one or the other coming from multifamily and adding short-term rentals or coming from short-term rentals, want to add some long-term multifamily. And today we're digging into his process for adding long-term multifamily into his investment process and so much more. A lot of great lessons in this one. You're going to learn a ton. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor. And to date, I have acquired, invested in, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $150 million of commercial real estate investments. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call. And I will look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. If you're hearing my voice right now, that means you are not subscribed. You're not listening to us on YouTube. If you'd like to see the videos of our interviews and some extra bonus content, look up the Passive Wealth Strategy Show on YouTube as well. Once again, our guest today is Andrew Shutsky. Without any further ado, here we go. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we dive into talking about your investment strategy, you mind telling us a bit about yourself and your background, how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure enough. Uh, family man based outside of Pennsylvania. Been invest- investing in real estate about 15 years, been in the corporate world about 20. Uh, so those have been pretty much working in parallel for a couple of decades now. And like anybody else, just on the journey towards financial freedom and pursuing what I really enjoy, my passions. Awesome. I love it. We're all about the real estate investing here as a vehicle for financial independence. And like to dive in today to talking about short-term rentals versus multifamily investing and your strategy around those two decisions that you've made throughout the process. So yeah, let's walk through your decision-making process and your experience really between the two. Yeah, sure. So 
Sure enough, I started my what got me into short term rentals in the first place was we wanted a a place to vacation at the shore. You know, the prices, you know, even when we first bought seven years ago now, wow. were relatively unaffordable for a you know, a family man just had our second kid. My wife said I was crazy for even looking. And really it was the only way we could get into it, only reasonable way we could get into affording a house where we wanted one, you know, on the in the right location, et cetera, all that stuff. So that was what kind of got my foot in the door was, hey, wanted a place we could vacation, offset some of the expenses. And then it got the wheels turning and thinking, you know, what what could I do to scale this? So we started looking for additional properties in that arena. You know, fast forward about five years later, it kind of, it, it was sucking up a lot of my time, right? So a lot of fun, you know, hosting families, everybody's on vacation. It's, you're meeting happy people. You never have to deal with evictions or collecting rent. That's kind of my, my initial pros. The cons for me was, you know, either have to self-manage, which is fine when, you know, with a handful of properties, if you're a busy guy or gal, whatever, it's, it's okay. If you subcontract that out, you're paying a pretty hefty fee. In a lot of cases, that might be as low as eight to 10% where it is in the Jersey area or as high as I've seen 35%. So quickly eats into the margins. So as I was, you know, spinning my wheels, trying to figure out how to scale this thing and potentially, oh, could this could be a, a potential source of real income, not just offsetting my day job income or just, a, you know, for some fun money. Uh, it it kind of led me to pursuing different options because I was like, look, this is too much of my time. It's not giving me the complete profitability I'd like. So I did a lot of research. I landed on a site called Bigger Pockets. You may have heard it on it uh, mm-hmm. about three years ago. Got into the multifamily space, started looking at apartment buildings, specifically commercial real estate and value add apartment buildings. I met a local syndicator who wound up being my first limited investment as a passive investor. That quickly escalated into, you know, I think close to about 15 or 1600 units today as a general partner. So awesome. Great. So what decisions did you make along the way to either continue with short-term rentals or kind of rotate out of short-term rentals? Like, how did you decide to handle that mix? Yeah, so I, I, I still dabble. I should say dabble. I still invest in both. However, my role in the short-term space is going to be limited to a handful of properties, largely where we can leverage the benefits as a family, use them as vacation places across the U.S., mainly the East Coast. But in terms of scaling and actually driving real passive income, strongly prefer either, you know, build the rent, new construction or value add multifamily for the obvious reasons. It's a lot less of my personal time and it just, it's a, it's a killer way to just place dollars and, and grow capital year over year, a lot more effectively for me on a long-term basis in the short time spot, the short time space. Okay. So I've had conversations with at least a few listeners out there who have brought up the topic of depreciation from short-term rentals in particular and the potential from that. How did that impact your specific situation? Did you consider that a yeah. huge benefit or were you not able to really take advantage yeah, of it? Yeah, I will tell you one of the, and I'm on year seven now, the short-term stuff, and I've, I've got to pay a dollar on income earned, which nice. largely due to, hey, some unlucky, unfortunate expenses with repairs, right? <laughs> But largely due to depreciation. So when it comes time to recapture that time of sale, I'll have a hefty bill. But ultimately, I hope to keep rolling that and rolling that and rolling that for you know at least a couple of, or a decade or two. So I would say the biggest benefit there has been we have not paid a dollar legally, have not paid a dollar of taxable income on any of the short-term rental we've generated so far, which is pretty cool, right? So hard to say that. And I'd say on the appreciation side, the short-term rental space has been really good for us. Maybe that was luck and timing, but the appreciation between appreciation and depreciation are the two of the biggest benefits from a cash flow standpoint and predictable cash flow 
really enjoy the multifamily space. It's a lot more, a lot less things to go wrong and you have a lot more units to spread out expenses. So I, I, it's funny, I just, I just did a local meetup talking about the same topic and we got into the depreciation piece a bit and we got into like, what do you prefer? If I have 100,000 to invest, should I go buy a property of my own on short-term space or should I just put it in a passive investment? And it really comes down to a couple things. One is how much time do you have to get involved and manage the property? And two, where are you in your career journey, right? Can you afford to not have any cash flow for a year or two, right? So in the short-term space, you may be doing well for six, seven months, just like a single family, long-term rental, and you have a roof leak. We've had that many times. We've had deck leaks, especially if you're in a beach area, you've had hurricane damage or whatever. That just may zap up all your profits you know, in, in a single week or month. Whereas in a, in a multifamily space, ideally you have a hundred plus units to spread out expenses. You've got substantial reserves, which you may not have in the short term space. So a couple of things to noodle on if you're if you're considering one or the other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, personally, I, I lean mm-hmm. strongly toward long term rentals and multifamily. But you know, we you know welcome all kinds here, and short term rentals are are fine. What are your thoughts about, especially since you you went through this? evolution and transformation yourself. What are your thoughts about the the phrase, the principle, whatever, live or vacation where you want and invest where it makes sense? You kind of initially got into it, as I understand, to invest where you vacation, yeah. right? And invest for your vacation. Was that kind of the right decision? Would you make that decision again? What are your thoughts about that? For, for the short-term rental space, for us, yes. If it's purely a an investment and the places you tend to vacation aren't landlord friendly, then maybe it may, may make sense, right? So if you're not, if you're vacationing maybe in a northeastern northeastern state, Boston, or maybe Vancouver, Canada, really tough laws around landlords there for either short or long-term rentals. So for us, it's a lot of southeast. It's a good place to invest and also to travel for many reasons, you know, tax tax laws, landlord laws, et cetera. Times of COVID, they get a lot of support there. So in our case, it made sense, but it may not always, depending on like if you tend to, to vacation in Southern California, not, not my choice of place to invest, but maybe a place, a great place to live for different reasons, schools, proximity to universities, et cetera. But in our case, it made sense, but I wouldn't say it's a one size fits all. <laughs> so... In your like diving into short-term rental investing initially, you know what I found talking with other people who started that way, there are some pretty big lessons learned in terms of just, you know, mistakes that you make along the way, whether it's, you know, buying right or financing right or having the reserves you mentioned, repairs, all those things that, that come up. What big lessons come to mind for you from that first one? Yeah. And this isn't something that really went wrong. It's just something I'm glad that I had put aside funding up front for. So sure. one around renovations budget, like like any other house project, if you've done it on a personal level, you might want to add quite a bit of padding there because when you start tearing into it, like we had to tear down our first one, not a tear down, but we were almost like a studs in renovation and the budget largely doubled as we went through the project. So have ample Renovation budget, probably double what you expect, whatever your whatever your estimates are, add substantial 25, 30% padding to that. And on an operating brief basis, particularly if it's in a vacation or a you know flood zone area, you know, your normal three to six months may not cut it. So you may want to go a bit bolder with that. And like in our case, I'll keep about I'll usually peel back about 15% of gross revenue year over year. And I typically don't have to come out of pocket, but some there may be years where you use more than that. There's years you very, need very little, but depending on 
you know, in our area, we're, we're in a salt air environment in most of our properties. So it takes a lot of, the lake takes a beating for the winter and there's always some kind of leak to deal with. And it can, can be anywhere from a couple hundred to tens of thousands of dollars. So having ample reserves, I can't stress that enough. I'm glad that I, I started with that in mind. I thought I was being too conservative and there's a year I zapped all that away. So it kind of hurts when it's really eating into cash flow, and I, you know, it kind of goes back to the pros and cons. But for me, the short-term rental space is, is twofold benefit. Is one is like I mentioned before, great place to vacation on a cheap or on a free side for family, and two, the long-term appreciation potential, which has been our biggest win. I think the property has almost tri- tripled or more than tripled in value since we bought it about six and a half, seven years ago. So, wow. Yeah. So, at what point, and maybe you've considered this or not, but at what point do you think about you know, cashing in your chips on that, you know, it sounds like this is at the Jersey shore. So maybe yeah. Atlantic city vibes yeah. going on here, but yeah. you know, cashing in and focusing on multifamily or just, you know, letting it ride. If you will, I hate to draw gambling, you know, analogies here, but I wonder about that. Yeah. This is going to be an example of like, do as I say, not as I do. And if it were not a, it, in our case, you know, our properties, it's somewhat of an emotional decision. We've got some family memories tied to these places now. So that, that I'll be honest, that influenced things a bit. If you're purely a, an investment standpoint, I, I, you know, whenever I have a conversation with my wife last summer, when it was like, what, in the 21 timeframe, everything has peaked, interest rates are still low, property values were absolutely insane. I'm like, look, if we, we had any whims about us, we should cash in on all these things right now. And we, and that, that was no doubt in my mind, the right moment to do it. And it hasn't dropped that much and it still could be a play, but I'm like, look, long-term, we keep this thing, keep these for another five years anyway, or 10, maybe 10 years, we upgrade on the line. You really can't go wrong. And if we had needed the money, absolutely would have sold right away. If I were serious about, you know, living completely off passive income in a much more accelerated time frame, and I had a real desire for that, I would have done this. I would have done it for sure. But for us, like, I, I enjoy what I'm doing. I enjoy the hustle a bit and it gives me a purpose. So hanging on to that for a little longer. I'll admit it was a partially emotional decision, but you know, it is what it is. So that's why it's not a, it's not an emotional decision that's strapping you financially at all. Right. And, oh and no, but it, but you got, it's an opportunity cost and you got to know that going in, going out and you got to be assessing the mark, just like with a commercial property or residential, you got to be assessing, you know, what am I giving up by keeping this property? Right. Like for us, we're creating memories. It's awesome. We use it a lot. And what I'm giving up is, you know, if I had to take all that equity, cash out, and put it all into a commercial property on my own, or with maybe with one partner, you know, that's gonna that's gonna provide a pretty pretty boost in pretty big boost in passive income, or you know, some some type of additional income. So you're giving that up. You just got to know that as you're assessing. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. It's it's okay to have a not amazing return on equity, but you know, you yeah. have that equity there yes. available. Yes. Yes. So this is something we haven't really gotten into in this conversation, but, you know, being an executive level, you know, worker still and balancing these things, all these time commitments, you've got family. I know a lot of our listeners out there are high earning, busy professionals trying to decide how they want to play as a real estate investor and balance that with their other important commitments. How have you drawn that balance between the you know, short-term rentals, multifamily, your family, yeah. your job, all of that. Yeah, I guess I probably, this is the number one question I get asked a lot of time. And there is, there, to be honest, there's no magic bullet. For me, it's all about just being consistent with your commitments and yourself and being flexible, right? So what do I mean by that? So for, for me, I'm an early riser. I typically try to get my work, my real estate work done 
either early in the morning or, or during the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, particularly, or Saturday morning, life gets in the way sometimes, right? So this comes, this gets into the flexibility piece. The second half of that is like, I might have to travel for five or six days for the day job and I don't get back to my real estate. So having the discipline, and I try to be adhering to this 89% of the time, having the discipline to make up that time that you've lost is key and being consistent with that. Like everybody falls down from time by, but coming back to that and saying, okay, guy, this is really important. I got to do whatever it is, go, you know, get a podcast guest, work my VA, get marketing out there. Whatever your daily running valuable activities are, you got to come back to those, right? So that happens all the time. I'd say with my life is crazier than it ever has been. I'm blessed to have the family going on and a really rewarding job and a really rewarding real estate business going on and building, thriving. But it really comes back to consistency and flexibility for me. Two key, okay. two key themes. Yeah. Okay. So with a lot of folks, there's there's two pieces to this, right? There's the willingness to take action. And then the other important piece, knowing what action to take. So you can be flexible in your willingness yep. to take action, but you got to know which direction to head. And that's hard when you're first getting started. You mentioned a few things that you kind of have on your list to get done at any given time, but how do you draw out those priorities so that you can, you know, knock the things out when you do have time to handle them? You know, I'll be honest too, this is a ever evolving work in progress. Like when I started it out, I thought I could be the hero and do everything, be everyone to everybody, you know, find my own deals, find my own partners, raise all the money myself. And I don't have to tell you how that ended, right? So, you know, <laughs> in the beginning, I, I thought I was going to, I was doing everything the way I was supposed to be doing. I read all the, I read every book out there, listened to hundreds of podcasts, blah, blah, blah. You get it. Found my first deal and you learn quickly how to burn yourself out. And that would be my number one takeaway and my advice to share with, with everybody out there is find one or maybe two things you're really good at. And don't be afraid to pull in a partnership team. And everybody might think, oh, I don't want to dilute equity right away. I mean, that's the wrong mindset. You know, first and foremost, straight and simple is that you, can, you can't be a hero to everybody. You can't be everything to everybody. Find the one or two things you're really good at, I, you know, or something you really enjoy doing and you're not great at it yet. Like for me, that was, you know, building a brand, doing the marketing, raising capital, working with investor relations. It took me a while to figure out what I was good at what and what I was decent at didn't have the time to do and it had to fall down the list. So working through that list and, and every, it's, it's going to be an evolution for everybody in, in the middle of a trial and error, to be honest, is you might think you really enjoy doing two or three things. Like I love finding deals. I really do. But do I, is that at the, can that be at the top of my list while I'm working 50 hours a week and traveling and have two kids at home? For me, no, not right now. Maybe I'll come back to that when I'm doing this full time someday, but that's, that's kind of how my thought process has worked. It's process of elimination, a little bit of trial and error, but you have to put in the work to, to kind of figure out what you like doing, what you don't. You're not going to know otherwise. So. so I think that's an interesting thing to line out too, because you said focusing on what you're good at, but if you don't know what you're good at yet, or maybe you're not good at anything yet, focus on doing what you like, and then maybe you can improve at that. And I think a lot of folks kind of get stuck at, yeah. well, I don't know what I'm good at, so what am I going to do? I mean- you got to test it out, man. So what you pick one thing, at my advice would be pick one thing at a time. Maybe it's raising capital. Maybe it's finding deals. Read every book you can find. For, you know, whatever your learning style is, like watch YouTube videos, listen to podcasts like your show, and just hit it hard. Hit it hard for 60 to 90 days. Don't, I'm not talking about it for a week or two, but hit it hard for three months and then you'll know. I mean, you, you got to put in the work to know. You, you, may, you may have an idea, but you got to put in the repetitions like, being in the gym, right? To know what you're good at, what you're not. And from there you can whittle it down. And over time you'll get, you'll get clarity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
So you've you mentioned you know finding partners. This is part of this whole process. You know, partnering up with other people. A lot of folks aren't necessarily willing to do that. Maybe have some limiting beliefs about it. But one of those key limiting beliefs, if you will, is how do I find people I know I can trust and that we have the same priorities? How did you handle that part of you know finding partners? That's tough. It is tough, and I, I could tell you that the you know as you evolve and, and you go through more and more projects or partnerships with different deals, you most likely will become more selective, like I've done, right? So, mm-hmm. in the beginning, you're hungry, you want to do a deal, and you're kind of maybe you let you lower your bar a little bit in terms of like who you're compatible with. So, there's a couple things that you know, you read all these books starting out. You're like, okay, I know what to look for in a deal, in it. I know how to vet the numbers, but what you can't get it, and just like interviewing somebody for a job in a, in a corporate world is like. In an hour meeting, you're not going to know for sure how you're going to be compatible with them, how they're going to communicate, are they going to meet your values. The biggest takeaway for me is a referral. And not only a referral from a you know maybe a past investor, but a referral from, a, from another partner that's worked with them in the past. And I like to ask them things like, what's your communication style? Do they show up on time to meetings consistently? I just, I just something that bugs me and irks me. It's really basic is respecting people's time. You know, are they, are they got to compromise and, and cut corners, right? And things like that. They don't, you don't can't, you can't get that meeting somebody at a conference for 30 minutes or 20 minutes or a coffee or a beer, or whatever it may be. You're not going to get that. But talking to someone who's worked with them, ideally on multiple partnerships, you'll get a much better feel for it. So do you feel you've made, you mentioned you've kind of become more selective over time, which yeah. is good. I think we, you know, all do that as we learn and, you know, develop that. Do you feel you made any, severe, I'm not trying to get you to call anybody out or anything, but any severe missteps earlier on, or was it just kind of like minor mistakes that you would try not to make again? In terms of finding partners specifically mm-hmm. or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like I said, that the, the big takeaway I had was asking for references from people who work with them before, because there's a lot of guys who can operate a deal well, but they'll be frustrating as hell to work with. And I learned that, you know, not calling any specific projects out, but you know, there's, there's teams that, that jive well, you know, professionally and they, they jive with your values and there's teams that can operate well, but they don't, they just quite simply just leave you in the dark for weeks. It's very frustrating, many sleepless nights. It's not worth it. It's really not. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So in a, a multifamily deal, you're kind of talking about working together, collaborating, mm-hmm. you know, kind of executing on the deal. What do you think is the best or most efficient way to organize those meetings, those communications? Should you have, you know, a set meeting every Monday evening where you're going to sit down and have a Zoom call and talk about what's going on? Should it be more nimble than that? How do you kind of handle putting those pieces together in a in a more tactical yeah. sense? No, that's a great question. I mean, it, to me, it depends on where you're at with your level of comfort with the team and the level with the property. Like in the beginning, when you're, you're just, you're trying to close a property, you got a lot of heavy lifting to do. For us, Weekly it usually is getting into great cadence is is really necessary for for properties that are more stabilized and you've already gotten over a lot of the heavy lifting value add or renovations. You know we might get away with once a month or even once every eight six seven eight weeks. People get busier on holidays, right? So once you're stabilized, you trust each other. You get there's a lot of great email communication between the team or using you know like Teams or Slacks channels for communication where you're getting back and messages back and forth. You don't really need to meet. You don't need to have a meeting. But when when teams aren't en- embracing technology or, or modern ways of communicating, even if it's text, and you're waiting and waiting for answers, to me then it's necessary, right? So you kind of got to gauge the communication style of the team, their comfort level with technology, you know, and what's going on with the property and, and how mature that property is in terms of its business plan. Okay. 
So a key part of our our team that I'd love to touch on before we go to the three questions I ask every guest on the mm-hmm. show is our, our property manager. And a lot of times we're using maybe a third-party property manager that we don't have total control over, right? They work for us, but they don't 100% work for us, really. Yeah. And it's our job to asset manage properly and to manage the property manager, make sure that they're getting things done. I think they're, over the last few years, there hasn't been quite enough focus in the broader multifamily conversation around asset management, but that's you know a hill yeah. I'm going to die on. I don't really know. But curious how you guys handle asset management. Do you have somebody that is responsible for it? Like, What's your, your process? Yeah, I'll tell you what's worked best and what hasn't been as effective. What's worked best is having one specific individual on point as the asset manager. So we've done, we've done asset management by committee. So first project, again, kind of goes back, maybe a communication thing. Again, something I would do better is get absolute crystal clarity on who's doing what on a one-by-one basis. Having one asset manager versus a rotating asset manager or everybody kind of not being clear on who's doing it, but everybody's leaning in, it, it causes a lot of confusion. So for me, having I don't care how the property is 50 units or 400 units or 800 units, one asset manager and maybe a backup when that person is not available, being the point of contact with the property manager, having a regular cadence absolutely established on a weekly basis or worst case biweekly in the beginning, maybe sometimes twice a week, are keys to success there. Nice, nice. Well, I love the yeah having somebody who's responsible for it and a consistent process really it does wonders. It's really uh, absolutely. Really it sounds simple, but it can't be overstated how important for someone getting into the game and thinking that they're gonna you know just figure it out as they go. I can tell you, it will not go well. Yeah, I think the market has saved a lot of folks over the last yeah, five to seven years who were a little lax on the asset management. Is right. just general appreciations kind of saved, but us Correct. moving forward, we got to be better. Now, there are going to be a lot. I mean, if you look at the amount of loan balances coming up that were in variable rate bridge debt, perhaps in the next year or two, it's in the 50 plus to $100 billion range. There'll be a lot of uh, turning over and a lot of reckoning coming in the next year or two, in my opinion. So, yeah. And I hope that's, you know, we, I, I think on this side of the, on this side of the Black Swan event, we kind of yeah. think like, ooh, opportunity. Absolutely. And then the Black Swan event happens and, we feel like we're going to be the one on the sidelines, like totally missing it, or we're going to be, you know, the stoic person who's snapping up all the deals. But yeah. it's it's actually hard to remain to be greedy when everybody else is fearful. It's it, hard to not follow the group it, like it's, that. It's like against human nature, right? Like everybody yeah. pulling back, or like, what am I missing here? I'm excited, but I'm also super cautious, and it gets people stuck, including me at times, right? So, got to watch out for that. I think it's important to try to be objective about that, especially yeah. ahead of time. But uh, that Tru- may be a topic. trust the numbers, trust the data, and get some trusted advisors, and make and just move forward, man. Make offers. So, and like we talked about with your your short term rentals, have reserves, prepare for those rainy days, and you can get through them. Exactly. Nice. Exactly. All right. Well, right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Andrew, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Let's go, man. I'm ready. Rock and roll. Great. 
First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? So, so let's talk about multifamily. One of the, I'll call the middle properties, the, the sandwich of the first and the last that I, that I made that I wish I had had a bigger stake in actually. So that should tell you something. <laughs> With a little 43 unit property in Greenville, South Carolina, one of my favorite markets, continue to invest there. And it's just, it's just been phenomenal. It's been no less than 98% occupied since we took it over. The renovations were light and the, and the tenant base is fantastic. The area is booming. It's one of those things I wish I had doubled. I'm a general partner. I wish I had maybe tripled my LP investment. <laughs> so if we, we're not, we're actually, we're not ready to sell. If we had to sell, it would be, it would be, it would do really well, but it's positions, cash flowing great and position really well for the long term. Nice. Nice. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? You know, I'll say uh, from a overall investing standpoint, I, I bought into a, a stock that was a startup pharmaceutical and I actually did okay buying this, but I'd sell, sold it way too early and gave up a whole lot of gains <laughs> a few years back. On the real estate side, I mean, unfortunately, nothing terrible, nothing... Uh, egregious, but I did buy a single family house. One of my, it was actually my first property, which I house hacked. Again, bought it at actually the right time and it, was, it stayed flat and flat and flat and flat for years, sold it at a little bit of a loss. And then of course the market went crazy and you know would have made a bunch more money. But hey, it's, it's a lot better than losing a bunch of money. So a lot of people have much worse horror stories and worse stories to tell. So all, all things considered, not too bad. That's good. That's good. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? I, I kind of alluded to this before, but number one, don't try to do it all yourself. Again, like figure out what you're good at. And there, there's a great book and she, you heard of it, but others may not have. It's called Who Not How. Oh yeah. I think it's Hardy is the author and it's really, really well articulates. It's a very simple premise, but he gives great examples in the book as to how do you really leverage what you're really great at and how to leverage other people's time to go exponentially faster than you would on your own. I love it. That book has been recommended by so many great people. It's definitely on my list. Unfortunately, I have so many books that I've already purchased that I need to read. I get it. I get it, man. I know. There's only so much time in a day. I understand. Absolutely. But I'm working my way to it. And I think our listeners should definitely check that out as well. And Andrew, I want to thank you for joining us today. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more, about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Sure. Really, everything funnels through our website. It's investwithredline.com. Our company's called Redline Equity. You can find links to our blogs on there, our podcast, our properties that we have going on. You can sign up for our newsletter. We've got a free eight-part learning series on there. So a whole bunch of information all funnels through investwithredline.com. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.